Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who qualifies as an experiencer, UFO or otherwise? What are these people actually experiencing? Why are some UFO experiences good and some bad? Hi folks and welcome to the 754th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM and their 11th year on the air. Hi, I'm Bill Burns, uh, sitting in for Ben today, who's off on a special project this weekend. Those varied questions that Paul just mentioned came from my co-host and Ben's dad, Paul. Today, we're going to bring you a frequent and distinguished guest, and we welcome your calls today. It is area code 401-766-1240. That's 401-766-1240 from anywhere in the country, east of the Rockies, west of the Rockies, north of Philadelphia, south of Philadelphia. Send emails during the show, after the show, or to paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Dot com. That's Paul, P-A-U-L, at BehindTheParanormalOneWord.com, and we'll take your calls, and we'll take your emails, and Kathy will have some wonderful things to say to you about her own experience with her aunt, Betty Hill. Okay, Kathleen Martin is a leading researcher of contact and with non-human intelligences, an author and lecturer. Her educational background in the social sciences has shaped her interest in scientific ufology. Extensive research and investigation into alien abduction has convinced her that some abductions are real. Kathleen holds a bachelor's degree in social work from the University of New Hampshire and participated in graduate studies in education while working as a teacher and education services coordinator. Her interest in UFOs dates back to September 20th, 1961, when her aunt, Betty Hill, as Bill just referred to, uh, phoned her childhood home to report that she and her husband, Barney, had encountered a flying saucer in New Hampshire's White Mountains. Today, she is recognized as the world's leading expert on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. Kathleen is associated with the Mutual UFO Network as its Director of Experience and Research and the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters as an advisory board member and consultant to its research subcommittee. Kathleen is the author of five books, three of them co-written with nuclear physicist, scientific ufologist Stanton Friedman. These include Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Science Was Wrong, and Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. A fourth book, The Alien Abduction Files, features Denise Stoner. Her new, her new book, The Experiencer's Handbook, was to be released in July, but has been delayed for a very good reason, she'll tell us about. More recently, uh, Kathleen has completed her work on MUFON's Experiencer Survey, which will feature in our discussion today. Her website, Kathleen-Marden.com. So, Kathleen Martin. Hi, Kathy. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be back. Oh, it's, it's good to see you. You know, I, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to you when we were in Arizona at that conference together, so this is a, a goodbye from a few months ago and a hello. Yes, and hello <laughs> to you again. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, first of all, for our viewers, there are two 
<coughs> there are two, uh, well, there are many aspects to the Betty and, and Barney Hill case, <coughs> but there are, there's a background to that case, and so what I'm, uh, what I'd like to begin with is just <coughs> start by doing two things. One, tell us the Betty Hill story, the Betty and Barney Hill story, then, for a lot of pe- a lot of people don't understand. They think that oh, Betty Hill just discovered what happened to her after she had gone to a psychiatrist, Benjamin Simon, with Barney because they were having psychological issues. But the morning after Betty's encounter, she actually spoke to you. And so, what I'd like you to do is kind of bring us up to speed on what the actual encounter was so folks know about it, and then what your Aunt Betty said to you on the following morning. Go ahead. (laughs) Very briefly, Betty and Barney were returning from a vacation in Niagara Falls in Montreal. They were driving at night through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. They had a close encounter with an unconventional craft. My uncle had conscious continuous recall of observing non-human entities as the craft hovered only about 100 feet away from him and about 50 feet above the uh, surface of the field he was standing in. Uh, Betty remained in the car. He... uh, because of the body language expressed and and, uh, what was going on on board this craft as he was looking up through binoculars at it, he feared that there was a plan, and that plan was to capture him. Something started to drop down out of the bottom of that craft, and he ran for his life back to the car, screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. At that point, he saw the craft return to a location just above the vehicle. And uh, so he told Betty to roll down the window, look up to see if she could see the craft. She was expecting to see lights. She didn't see any lights. So she thought that the craft had just simply flown away. Um, All she saw was darkness. And within uh, a couple of minutes of the time that she rolled the window back up, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the vehicle. Um, it caused the vehicle to vibrate and for this electrical-like tingling sensation to pass through their bodies. The next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway. They had very little memory for what had occurred in the interim, although they had conscious recall of uh, the close encounter of seeing the craft, Barney retained conscious recall of observing those non-human entities and feeling threatened. So uh, they did also retain some conscious recall of encountering a roadblock somewhere along the way. They didn't know where or when it occurred. They had conscious recall of observing a fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground. They... uh, argued about what happened. Uh, Betty said to Barney, now do you believe in flying saucers? And he said, don't be ridiculous, Betty. He, I'll show you. And they they heard a second series of buzzing sounds just before this occurred, and Barney stopped the car to show 
Betty that he could make those sounds, that he could produce that noise. He drove the car from side to side, did everything he could to try to reproduce those sounds, and he was not able to do it. They drove on home, hoping that they would find a police officer, that they could find some human contact. Uh, But when they arrived home, uh, they had not been able to find anyone or anything that was open. That is when they discovered that they were home much later than they suspected they would be. It was a couple of months before they were actually able to retrace that route and discover that they were had lost at least two to three hours that night. And there was physical evidence as well when they arrived home. Betty's best dress was torn in several locations. The hem was torn down on one side. The lining was torn from waist to hemline. The stitching in the zipper on the back of her dress had been torn. And there was a tear in the thick zipper fabric as well. She placed it in her closet, and the next time she took it out, there was a pink powdery substance on the dress. That dress has been analyzed in five separate scientific laboratories, always with anomalous findings. Uh, The tops of Barney's best dress shoes were so deeply scraped, he had to purchase new shoes. Uh, The watches they were wearing that night were just old-fashioned wind-up watches. They never worked again. There were shiny spots on the trunk of the car that caused a compass needle to spin and spin when it was placed over those spots, indicating a magnetic field. We've seen this in other cases of abduction uh, that MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, has uh, investigated. Uh, So there was a lot of evidence. Betty and Barney were credible people. She was a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. He worked for the post office. And they were also very actively involved in the civil rights movement and politics in the state of New Hampshire. Now, Now, uh, I I, I just want to to add two things to uh, to Kathy's story. Um, One is what happened afterwards where... And, and Kathy, I'm sure we'll go into this, where, where Betty and Barney became almost like the poster faces for UFOs and aliens and abductions in the early 1960s. So that was one thing. But the other thing is, and Kathy, you can speak to this because we've talked about it before, Betty and Barney absolutely never, ever sought the public eye. The last thing they wanted to do was be on the cover of a national magazine. Now, all of this is taking place. This is 1961. Now, I want to go in the Wayback Machine here before Paul jumps in on the open discussion, but I want to go in the Wayback Machine here. In the year 1961, John F. Kennedy was the President of the United States, and this was interracial marriage in the United States was prohibited by law in various southern states. Explicitly, it was prohibited in Virginia, and um, inter- and the prohibitions against interracial marriage were not struck down by the Supreme Court until the 1968 Loving versus Virginia case. So Betty and Barney, their marriage would have been illegal in some of the states in the United States. They were a private couple. Am I correct, Kathy? You are absolutely correct. In fact, Betty and Barney agreed to speak with scientists, 
They agreed to speak with UFO investigators, and they even confided to their minister and to some members of uh, officers at Pease Air Force Base. They, they did make an official Project Blue Book report to Pease Air Force Base, but they did not seek public attention. Uh, Barney was very active in the civil rights movement on the NAACP, and in 1965 he was appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission's State Advisory Committee. He certainly did not want to be thought of as some kind of UFO. And so uh, he, he and Betty both had very strong reasons for not wanting uh, this to be made public. And it was made public as the result of a violation of confidentiality that occurred in the fall of 1965 that carried that story uh, to the public through five Boston newspaper reports. The five nights in a row in the Boston Herald Traveler uh, written by John Luttrell. He had actually uh, spoken with a friend of Betty's, a woman that Betty had befriended, who uh, violated confidentiality and told him about the story. He had written a letter. I have the letter. He wrote to Betty and Barney naming her and stating that he uh, would like to speak with them, uh, that he would uh, guarantee that he would not publicize this in any way but it was for his own personal information. They refused to speak with him, and then he carried the story public anyway. One good thing that came out of that is that I have a letter that he wrote to Stanton Friedman stating that he had interviewed 12 to 14 witnesses who were in that same location in New Hampshire, on the same night, in the same time frame, and that they had observed an unconventional craft of the same description that Betty and Barney saw. So uh, there are co corroborating witnesses to this case. Okay, if I can cut in here for just a minute. Uh, great discussion, but we have a caller. Uh, Phil from Orange, Massachusetts is calling in. Uh, we got him here. And Phil, welcome uh, to WOON and Behind the Paranormal. Greetings, Paul, and delighted to meet you, Bill. Oh, thank you. Say hello um, to Kathy. Hi, Kathy. <laughs> hello. Um, if I may, I'd like to go a bit off topic, although this is really fascinating. I hadn't known those details. Um, Kathy, you were a featured expert on a recent documentary entitled Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Shocking Truth. And during your comments on the famous sighting, actually as famous as Betty and Barney, um, by Kenneth Arnold in the Cascade Mountains. You pointed out that Arnold was looking for a downed plane. Years later, Arnold said that he was flying that day to claim a $5,000 reward, a tremendous payday in 1947, that the Navy was offering to anyone who found their missing C-46 transport plane. When it was finally found, none of the 32 passengers and crew were in the plane. The Navy, and this to me sounds like verifiable information, claimed that the bodies were dragged away by mountain lions and that the crew and passengers were represented in a Navy funeral by closed but empty caskets. Um, 
my question to you, Cassie, are, my questions are as follows. Are you aware of that account from Kenneth Arnold? Because if not, I'd be glad to send the link to that interview to Paul. Secondly, do you think that MUFON should assign an investigator to confirm Arnold's account of the mystery? And finally, if that account is confirmed, would you agree that those 32 vanished experiencers are a still-smoking gun which could break up the government's wall around disclosure? Well, first of all, I want to say that I was not aware uh, that the down transport plane was found and that the bodies of the uh, people who were on board that plane were missing. Uh, I would like to have that report. Um, I, I do know, and I wrote about this in, in uh, my book with Stanton Friedman, Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers, uh, based upon uh, the records that I was able to find on this case, that uh, Kenneth Arnold uh, saw nine crescent-shaped discs and that one of those discs uh, had a double crescent uh, on the rear end and that they, it was later discovered that they, uh, the speed was about 1,656 miles per hour, which is three times as fast as any plane was able to fly in that time frame that they were mirror bright and I also found evidence that there were people on the ground in uh, that time frame who also saw uh, what Kenneth Arnold had described. So that's what I know about these things but I did not know uh, the details that you told me about the transport plane. I can Talk tell you that six gun. days... I'm sorry? Talk about a smoking gun. Yes, uh, you know, it has, and that came directly from Kenneth Arnold. Yes, actually, the first I came across a little article in a 1959 edition of Fate, F-A-T-E magazine, and it was just this, almost like a brief. And so I wanted more information. I went online and I found a lengthy interview with Kenneth Arnold, I, I believe, from the 90s. I will send uh, Paul the link so you can all read it. And sure enough, he goes into great detail about mountain lions. <laughs> hmm. Okay, uh, Kathy, anything further here? Uh, there were a couple of other questions. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if anyone in MUFON is interested in further investigation of that or not. Uh, I have m my own things that I specialize in and I'm very right. busy at the current time, so I can't look further into that report, but I would appreciate receiving uh, the link to Kenneth Arnold's uh, testimony. I'll pass the mic. Uh, Bill, do you have any comments on these uh, these discussions? Well, sure. First of all, the, uh, the um, <clears throat> anything surrounding the Kenneth Arnold sighting is important because that is where uh, there are two cases where the modern, and I'm going to refer to it as lore, even though it's a reality, where the modern lore of flying saucers begins, and they're both right about the same time within weeks of each other. One is the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and the other is the crash at Roswell. And when you read 
the um, FBI reports at the time. This very public, these were two very public events in terms of the things that happened during World War II, in terms of some of the briefings that Franklin Roosevelt, that President Roosevelt might have gotten, uh, the stories of Foo Fighters, they were, they were all tied up in a lot of misunderstandings and uh, conflicting witness testimony, conflicting witness stories. But these two stories, Kenneth Arnold and Roswell, they start the story, the popular flying saucer in motion. And when you remember that the 1950s, that was the decade of the saucers, that begins in 1947 with those two sightings. So any details about Kenneth Arnold, any remaining details about Roswell, those are the things that uh, I think are important to researchers still today, 70 years later. Okay. Well, thank hey. you, Bill, and thank you, Kathy. It was an honor to meet you. Phil, you are, Phil, you are indispensable. Thank you for your call. I will send that thank link. You. Very good. Bye-bye. Okay. I do want to add one thing. Sure, that go ahead, six days after Kenneth Arnold's sighting, uh, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who was the commander of the Army 8th Air Force, uh, issued a press release that said there was no worry. It was only weather phenomena. And uh, this was just before the Roswell crash. So and, they and are related, and he covered up the Roswell crash as well. Oh, oh and, and more than that, Betty, here's the other thing that happened. So it was, so I think, just as, a, as an old researcher, one of the more important personalities, and Betty, you uh, you pointed it out just now, was Roger, Ra- <laughs> oh, was Roger Ramey. I- I'm sorry, Kathy. Um, I'm so used to talking to your aunt. Um, it was Roger Ramey. Roger Ramey commented about the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Roger Ramey was critical in covering up because he went to Roswell the day before the Roswell material was flown to Fort Worth. Ramey flew down to Roswell with DuBose, and they had a meeting with the general staff of the um, Roswell Army Air Force Command, including um, including Captain Sheridan, including Jesse Marcel, uh, and 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 it was there that the cover up was put in place. But then, flash forward five years to 1952. When after the whole Washington, the invasion of UFOs over Washington, the summer of the saucers, those two weekends when echelons of um, UFOs flew over the Capitol building, the White House, the Washington Monument, covered on major newspapers around the country, covered in movie tone newsreels, when General Samford of the Air Force was wrestling with what to tell the American people, who were now eyewitnesses to UFOs, it was Roger Ramey who counseled General Samford, look, don't admit to UFOs, these are all anomalies, they're, they're weather inversions on radars, the pilots made, mistake, made mistakes, and all their instruments were faulty. It was Ramey. He's a key figure in this, and I've always wanted to know why. Yes, and, and, you know, I was very pleased to have that press, uh, the, the transcript from that press conference and discovered that uh, General Samford had actually uh, stated that these things have been observed uh, dating back to biblical times. 
that uh, people were observing uh, phenomena and that he was not intending to criticize them. They appeared to be uh, real sightings by credible people, but that the Air Force was looking at this uh, very carefully and interested in it, but they were not frantic about it. So I was, I was pleased to find that in what he stated. And the other fascinating thing was that General Samford, at the time Ramey was counseling him, General Samford was having a crisis of conscience, and the person who mentioned this was Donald Kehoe, because he knew Samford. And so Donald Kehoe wrote that General Samford was having this absolute crisis. Should he lie to the American people? Should he tell the truth to the American people? This was in the media. Should he tell the truth to the American people? And he was counseled to lie by Roger Ramey, by General Ramey. Yes, which is unfortunate, but that's the way it has gone throughout history. Paul? Bad habit. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, we were on the... (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay, we're going to take our bottom-of-the-hour break, folks. Sorry to interrupt the discussion. We're going to come back. I want to talk about the Experiencer Survey. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with Bill Burns sitting in for Ben today. Ben's off uh, running around northern Vermont on some kind of film shoot. And uh, we are on WON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Manny Brando. And this is Virginia. We're here to tell you our new showtime is one hour later, Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Oh, good. I can sleep another hour. You do, and you'll be late for breakfast. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. Okay, and welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Our guest today, Kathy Marden. Uh, UFO uh, experiencer, researcher extraordinaire, author, lecturer, uh, and also uh, William Burns, Bill Burns of uh, UFO Hunters fame. That was my favorite show on all of TV, and I'm sorry it's not around, but we'll you know we'll see how it goes later on. Uh, so let's get back to our discussion. Uh, the charities Ben and I have uh, have uh, adopted will be uh, mentioned at the end of the uh, the show. But let's get back to our discussion. And Kathy, I'd like to get into if we could the experiencer survey that you worked on for MUFON. Uh, what, what was that about, and what were some of the findings? Oh, uh, all right. Are we... What? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me begin again. Oh, you, you took ten years off my life, Kath. Now, I was asking about the, uh, the experiencer survey, what it was about, and uh, yes. what yes. the findings uh, were. Beginning in 2012, Denise Stoner and I conducted a very small survey, only 75 participants, um, to identify commonalities among experiencers that are not common in the general population. Then, uh, about 2014, I started working with the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters on another survey that involved a very wide range of t- different types of experiencers, not just uh, those who believe they've had contact with extraterrestrials, but uh, people who channel drug-related, uh, out-of-body experiencers. And so then in 2015, 
um, MUFON's experiencer research team, of which I am the director, decided to uh, do a study of people who believe they have been abducted or contacted by extraterrestrials. That was the uh, group that we targeted. And so uh, we did some advertising in the MUFON Journal and on my website, but also the 20 members of my team who speak with experiencers on a daily basis asked those who seem to have a credible case to complete this experiencer survey. We had 118 questions, and it was on online on SurveyMonkey. Um, the problem that we have when you simply do a survey is how do you know who is telling the truth and who is lying? Who is just in there to confuse the data? And who is delusional? You have a lot of uh, different factors that come in that uh, might uh, skew your results. So I had been working with Dr. Don C. Don Derry. Don is a retired psychology professor and statistician at McGill University. He has spent his life doing social research, and he was kind enough to become a member of MUFON's Experiencer Research Team. So he and I are the people who do the research on the team. He worked with Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis, who is a clinical social worker from New York City, uh, to develop what was called the American Personality Inventory. The American Personality Inventory was based upon the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which was a, a psychological device used to identify uh, people who were suffering from psychiatric conditions. Uh, this, the API, was did not identify people who are suffering from psychiatric conditions. What it did was be able, able to identify those people who were hoaxers or wannabes versus those people who completed the test who uh, were just members of the general population who knew very little about the abduction phenomenon, and then to select a target group of individuals who had the knowledge, even the secret knowledge involved in UFO abductions and uh, also had the emotional signature that people who have been taken by these non-human entities have. So what we did is we had part one, which was the experiencer survey, and part two that was the American personality inventory. And Don and I worked together on these. I was in charge of the survey, and I was able to identify 516 individuals who participated in the survey and appeared not to be hoaxers, because I had some trick questions in there too, and who completed the survey. 188 of those agreed to go on to phase two of the survey, the American Personality Inventory. And of those, Don selected a target group of 175. He said that was all that was needed to have statistically accurate and significant information. 
So what we ended up doing is identifying those people who had alien abduction syndrome. That's what uh, Bud and, and the others called it, those who had all of the characteristics of having been real uh, people who were abducted by these non-human entities. Uh, then we had another target group of people that we identified as contactees because they, uh, although they were in the abductee range, were farthest from the target of ha- being abductees. So apparently they had these experiences, but they were far more positive, or there were four who were, that were far more negative uh, than those who had actual contact with extraterrestrials. We also had the overall group of survey takers. And we discovered that those who were the abductee group had special characteristics at a highly statistically significant rate that were not as high in the other two groups the overall survey takers, and the contactee group. The contactee group had their own set of um, characteristics that were high, and it was just usually that it was non-physical contact and that the contact was very positive in nature, that they had close encounters with craft, that they called in, and that sort of thing. But... Among uh, those who were identified as being abductees, uh, we found that most were taken more than once, but less than 20 times, and that they were usually taken for the first time when they were children. We asked questions that a lot of people in the public are interested in about, for example, Uh, what was their blood type and were they Rh positive or Rh negative? We know that about uh, 15 to 16% of the general population is Rh negative. And we know that the Basque population from Spain is entirely Rh negative. But what we found is an elevated level of Rh negative blood among the abductee group. It was 33%, or it was 31% among all survey takers, so it was still elevated. But still, about 67% uh, were Rh positive. So this is not a phenomenon that is common only to Rh negative blood types, although they are elevated. I don't know the reason for that. Um, I ask questions about, uh, you know, did, you, did you have conscious recall of observing a UFO at less than 500 feet in the distance? And 70% stated that they had. How about observing non-human entities? Conscious recall of this. 52% said yes. I asked if they had witnesses to their close encounter, and 50% said yes. 60% said that family members had also had close encounters and were abducted. So we see that this tends to be generational.
and also that 85% stated that uh, contact was physical in nature. But they also had dreams about this that seemed too real to have actually been dreams. I have a lot of information here, and I don't want to bore anybody. So if you, if you have any questions, feel free to ask or interrupt me, please. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I was going to ask Bill if he uh, had any further comments or questions. Well, sure. I mean, um, I have a couple. On the one hand, when we were doing uh, <clears throat> a, a kind of a ad hoc quickie survey of these two people in <clears throat> in the first season of UFO Hunters, I think this was in actually the same episode, Kathy, you were in. Yes. Where uh, are these two individuals from extraordinarily different backgrounds. I mean, as different as different could be. One was an African-American Marine veteran. The other was uh, a Caucasian individual. One person lived in Virginia. One person lived um, up on the Great Lakes. They had the same type of blood secretions. They both had um, intense experiences with UFOs. They were both contactees. In the case of this one person, he was told he was a star child, that he was an alien hybrid, um, that he was hearing voices in his head. He had been discharged from the Marines for having a blood disorder. It wasn't a blood disorder. It was a secretion of a protein. And uh, the Marines, the, uh, the Navy couldn't explain why. The other person had the same thing. They were both tested at Mass General. So that was interesting, seeing they had the same kind of blood issue. But the other question I'd want to ask you is, given the fact that in the Basque region of Spain, the Catalonia region of Spain, where the RH negative um, population is so high, it would be interesting, and the other aspect about this, the other quirky aspect about this, is that the Basque language is a non-Indo-European language. It's not a Romance language. You'd think it would be. I mean, it's in Spain. Mm. It's a Romance language, a Latinate language. Nope, Basque is not a Romance language. It is not a Germanic language. So these were not a language based on the Germanic tribes that invaded the Iberian Peninsula. Um, it is not any language related to the major language groups currently. It is actually believed to be a language spoken by Stone Age human beings, Stone Age societies. So it's a very old language, very different from the rest. I would be really curious to see if there is a heightened um, UFO experience or population in that Basque region of Spain as well. Absolutely. That would be a fascinating study. And I do know that the foundation, Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters, is uh, expanding their experience or questionnaire to include um, various uh, languages around the world. And I'm going to write to Ray Hernandez, who is the day-to-day uh, -day director of FREE, and ask him, about that, because that would be a fascinating study to continue on with with that. Well, you heard it first on this show. Uh, 
All right, Kathy, uh, with everything you and Bill have been discussing, do you feel that this lends credence, the, uh, particularly the idea of the Rh negative blood type, lends credence to the notion that uh, something or someone is genetically messing with us or has? Well, it it does appear that that is the case, and there uh, I had open-ended questions on the experiencer questionnaire as well, the survey, and I asked, uh, you know, a variety of different questions. But it seems that based uh, on the overall input that I received, the experiencers are being told, they're being informed that there is great concern about human behavior, uh, that they are attempting to upgrade the human genome in order to, in an attempt to save this planet. They say that they fear we will destroy um, life on this planet, that it has occurred before in our distant past, and they do not want to see this happen again. There are also other upgrades that are taking place with experiencers themselves, uh, and some of those are things such as increased psychic ability. Uh, people who are experiencers become empathic, meaning that they can sense the emotions of others. And if you can sense somebody else's emotions as if they were your own, you are far less likely to want to harm someone else. Uh, there were other things such as uh, the individuals who participated in our s survey at a very high, statistically high rate stated that they no longer identified as being part of a, a small nationalistic group, but they thought, saw themselves in a whole new way. They saw themselves as being members of this world and uh, I think that that is something that is being promoted by these non-human entities. Uh, there were about 35%, I believe, who felt that they were indeed uh, hybrids. I also asked a, a question because so often we hear that it's all the result of sleep paralysis and, and sleep hallucinations. So one of the questions I asked uh, is if, they uh, had awoken, paralyzed, and able only to move their eyes. And what I discovered was among the abductee group, 90% said they had. And among the overall survey takers, it was 75%. But then I went on to ask, were you awake? Did you see non-humans? And then did you experience paralysis? That would separate out uh, sleep paralysis from a real event. 60% of the abductees stated that they had had this occur, whereas it was 36% among the overall survey takers. I thought that was very important. Well, you know, you both know Ben and myself, and you know that we don't take things at face value. And we question everything and this sort of thing. Maybe that's, I think it's, I think that's justified, particularly in case of this kind. I would ask, um, I don't know, what do you think, Kathy and Bill, 
about the legitimacy of you know the the happy positive nature of what these beings, whoever or whatever they may be, are actually trying to do. And, I'm, and this gets a bit into the question of why do some people have positive experiences, why do people have negative, even terrifying experiences in these situations. Not just in UFO experiences, but uh, in, in our work we've encountered over the last half century all these uh, ghost experiences, if you want to call them that, or, or Bigfoot experiences, things on which we put our narrow labels that are really quite similar in many ways. Um, so wh- wh- how legitimate do you think all this, this wonderful human brotherhood, you know, campaign on the part of whoever, whatever this is, uh, how legitimate is that? Or do we even know? Well, Kathy? I'd like to answer that question first. And uh, what we have discovered, uh, both at MUFON and at FREE, is that uh, people initially experience a lot of fear. And that that fear tends to color their perception of what is occurring. But over time, as they repeatedly have these experiences, they start to lose their fear and receive information from these non-human entities. They feel that they have an important role to play at that point. Are they being lied to? I have no idea. I just... I don't know, but they do not feel that they are being lied to. They think that they are taking part in something that is extremely important. Okay. Uh, Bill? Well, uh, the fa- uh, there are two fascinating aspects to this, actually three. One is to follow up on what Kathy mentioned about the um, we've had life extinctions on this planet before. We are now on the cusp of the sixth extinction of life on planet Earth. Now, whether it's going to be from a, a, a large meteor hitting the planet, whether it's from climate change, we know the devastation of climate change. There's no point arguing that on, on, on the show. But um, Or from something else, a nuclear war, what we know is that there are forces now, many of which are the result of human population and human technology and human urbanization that are changing the planet so dramatically that just here in the United States, for example, I mean, right right here on the east coast of the United States, Tangier Island in the Chesapeake, in the Chesapeake Bay, that is slowly but inexorably slipping underwater because the ocean levels are rising and coastal cities around the world are going to be flooded out. So the human population is going to have to migrate in large ways because climate change is affecting the coasts of all the major continents. So in the sixth extinction, we are at the beginning right now. The oh, other okay, I, I'm going to cut in here because we're running out of time. I wanted to give Kathy and Bill, uh, both of you, a chance to talk about your books, your website, where people can find out more about you, and we'll continue this uh, in, on another show because it's really fascinating. Kathy? Uh, you can contact me or read my information at Kathleen with a K dash Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. Autographed copies of my books are available on my website. There's also a list of my upcoming appearances, and I will be in Exeter, New Hampshire with you, Paul. Oh, yes, we can't wait. Labor Day weekend, 
and there is a conference in Columbia, South Carolina that is absolutely free where Stanton Friedman will give his last lecture and I will be speaking and Jan Harzan, who is MUFON's uh, director, will also be speaking. Outstanding. Uh, Bill, tell us about uh, where people can find out more about you and what you're working on. Well, um, I'm working on uh, a couple of books right now. Um, actually, not in the UFO field. Uh, the book that I have out this year on UFOs is called UFOs in the White House. And it's basically the UFO history of the United States presidency from George Washington right to the present day, covering what <clears throat> we believe NASA will find on Enceladus and in um, Enceladus and uh, possibly on Mars, now that we've discovered water on Mars. We may discover that the water on Mars contained elements uh, of um, past life forms on Mars and when meteors hit Mars and chunks of Mars fell into the underneath the Arctic Oceans, they became us. So that's what we may find one day, that we're Martians. So I'm doing that, but I'm also working on two other books. One is The Life and Times of Jerry Lewis, called The Clown That Cried, and the other is a story about um, Ozzie and Harriet and the creation of modern television, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. And folks could always find me on one show or another. I did a recent Ancient Aliens, and I'm going to be coming up on a Discovery Investigates for a, true con- for a true crime case that took place a few years ago that um, modern technology solved. Well, I have to tell you, Bill, I promised my wife I would tell you that uh, she has become very interested in ancient aliens, which I find most uh, disconcerting, because in 37 years of marriage, she's never been interested in this subject at all. So uh, she's been won over, I guess. Okay, very good. Uh, I think we can... Um I wanted to announce, too, that uh, on September 29th, we have, uh, dovetailing with what Kathy said, a tribute show to Stanton Friedman, who will be on the air with us. And I uh, just thought that uh, in honor of his retirement, we would do that. Uh, he's a He's been a good friend to all of us, and uh, he'll be missed in the field. But I have a funny feeling he's going to stay active somehow. All right, very good. Well, okay, uh, Kathy, uh, stay on with us, if you will. But, Bill, uh, we'll get into our announcements. Okay, here. And uh, <clears throat> let's see, where are we? We've got, um, Ben usually does this. On Labor Day weekend, as Kathy mentioned, uh, September 1st and 2nd, uh, Ben and I will return to the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire. Uh, along with us, speakers will include none other than, of course, Kathy, Peter Robbins, Mark D'Antonio, filmmaker Jennifer Stein, Bob Terrio, Mike Stevens, and Shane Searway, among others. Our subject on Saturday will be, quote, aliens and exorcism, why do, quote, unquote, possessed people report UFO experiences? On Sunday, we'll do our third annual on-location broadcast of Behind the Paranormal from Exeter Town Hall with a panel of the speakers and the live audience. This event is a great annual fundraiser for the Kiwanis Club Children's Charities in southern New Hampshire. Last year, it raised over $9,000 for those charities. So find out more at ExeterUFOFestival.org. And on Columbus Day weekend, October 5th and 6th this year, Paul and Ben will once again speak at the Greater New England UFO Conference in um, Leominster, Massachusetts. Their topic, Aliens with or Without UFOs. Find out more at NewEnglandUFO.com. Okay, uh, it's back to the Danbury, Connecticut Library. I guess they love us there. Once again, on Saturday, October 13th, for the third annual 
Western Connecticut UFO Conference. Watch BehindTheParanormal.com for more information. Now, my next book, uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds, has gone to the publisher. Uh, not sure how soon it will be released, or even if that title will stay in one piece, but we'll keep you posted on that. Expected the release date sometime in 2019. So again, uh, Bill, uh, you, well, I guess you already did this. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, folks, could fi- uh, folks could find me at uh, ShadowLawnPress.com. Right. That's my website, and they could see all of our books, and... and uh, they could see clips of uh, UFO hunters and ancient aliens over on the History.com website, the History Channel website. Very good. Okay, so uh, our to our being Ben and myself, 2016 book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is, fi- is uh, finally available as an e-book on Amazon Kindle and Apple iTunes, and it's available in stores as well. Uh, Schiffer Publishing. Uh, you can get all our books in print form as well, and if you order them online, either of our two websites, BehindTheParanormal.com or NewEnglandGhosts.com, we're happy to autograph them for you. And um, you also should uh, go, if you have the time, to BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, we have over, eight, uh, I think it's over, as of this show, 800 hours of this show, it's all free, uh, and you can, if, uh, if you're an over-the-road trucker, you have it made, uh, because we had actually a guy from over-the-road trucker said he drove from Chicago to L.A. listening to our shows the whole way. Boy, he must have had a heck of a headache when he got there, but it was a nice thing to say. And, uh, of course, at Behind the Paranormal, not only can you find the past shows... But you could talk about Paul and Ben's many cases over the year, their, uh, their years, their public appearances, and you'll find all of their 800 uh, free recorded shows from their 10 years on the air, including, by the way, the four-and-a-half-year run on CBS radios along with special shows and podcasts. Okay, thanks, Bill. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including USA Cares. Dot org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection out there in Los Angeles, Tony Luray doing great work out there, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Now, we really check these things out. We know the people who run these charities, and the money goes where it's supposed to. So, uh, Bill, what are we uh, plotting for next week? Well, next week is going to be fun, I have to tell you, because uh, I know this guest, I can tell you, Vast stories about this guest, but <laughs> next week, but next week, um, uh, you and Ben are going to welcome back the great Timothy Green Beckley to talk about deadly UFOs, and he will have some wonderful stories for you. I guarantee it. Okay, Bill, do you have a quote for us, or should I use the generic one? Oh, go ahead and use the generic. Oh, okay. Well, we'll leave this afternoon with a sobering quote from 20th century Russian author and anti-communist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose, once, whose son once had breakfast at our house. Uh, the strength or weakness of a society depends more on the level of its spiritual life than on its level of industrialization. Okay, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Bill Burns, and I'm sitting in for Ben Eno. And everybody, thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you behind the paranormal. And thank you both. Bill, you did a terrific job as a co-host. I might I might retire Ben and hire you. So thank there you. we are. Thank you very there much. You and go. Kathy, thank you so much. Great show. Talk great. to you next thank time. You. Thanks, Kathy. Thank Good hearing your voice. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben